Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. This is an important conversation as he spoke to James Bullard yesterday, as we spoke to William Dudley moments ago. Michael McKee advances the discussion with Mr. Kaplan of Dallas. Michael? Thank you, Tom. Good morning, uh, Rob. Thank you very much for joining us today on Bloomberg Radio and Television Worldwide. Um, and thank you for not wearing a tie and not making Tom look bad here. <laughs> I'll try. Yeah, I'll try. Um, I hate to do this, but let me start by playing the cynic's advocate. Uh, there are those who are saying this morning the framework review change is all well and good. But what makes you think you can even get to 2% inflation, let alone over right. it, since you've gone a decade without getting there? Uh yeah, it's possible that it will take a while to get to 2%. Uh, technology, technology-enabled disruption uh, in particular are limiting the pricing power of businesses. And, uh, and inflation has been muted for close to 10 years. And so uh, part of this uh, policy uh, articulation is really a reaffirmation of the, of the situation we've been operating in and our decision function for the last few years. It's not a radical shift. It's an affirmation that we're, we've been in a more muted inflation period. Uh, we need to be alert that that could change. But, uh, but I, don't, I don't view this policy articulation as a, as, a, as a radical change. It's a reaffirmation of the way we've been operating. Well, so the uh, new policy is that, uh, quote, uh, appropriate monetary policy will likely aim to achieve inflation moderately above 2% for some time. How do you define moderately above and how do you define some time? Yeah, and we've left it deliberately undefined. To me, price stability is still our dual mandate. It's full employment and price stability. 2% is our, our best indicator of that. And so for, for me, what it means is if we're running, uh, if we get in a situation, I hope we do in the next couple of years, where we're running closer to full employment, I'm willing to take a little bit more risk and have a greater tolerance uh, in my monetary policy judgments that inflation could run a little bit above 2%. And for me, a little bit means a little bit uh, in that I've, I've said publicly you know, two and a quarter, maybe a little bit more than that. I still think price stability is the overriding goal, and and this framework doesn't change that. Well, why isn't this a return to 1960s-style Fed policy, trading off inflation for lower unemployment? Because, of course, that didn't end well. Yeah, and that's a danger. That That's a danger. And so uh, uh, it's not that I'm going to lose a concern that we could have uh, – a spike in inflation, and I'm not going to lose a concern. And in fact, this this framework articulates a concern about financial stability. I think those concerns haven't gone away. Uh, it, it just says on the margin, this is my interpretation and the way I'll be operating, on the margin, I'm willing to take a little bit more risk in service of getting underrepresented groups into the labor force, a little bit more risk on inflation. But I am not, for one, going to be willing to take risk that we'll lose price stability a la the 60s and 70s. I'm going to be on guard against that. Well, there's also a concern out there that an overrepresented group, people on Wall Street, are going to be the real beneficiaries here, that you may not be able to stimulate a lot of economic activity or inflation, but you sure can pump up the stock market. 
Uh, I think that's also something we have to be cognizant of. And in particular, not just on the Fed funds rate, but also on our purchases of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities and the 13-3 programs that we've implemented this year. I think it's very important that we articulate that those programs will lapse. Uh, and I do think uh, we, we need to be conscious of financial stability and excesses that could build as a result of our policies. And, and I, I will uh, view that as an important consideration as I make judgments going forward. Well, if you were still at Goldman Sachs looking at your Bloomberg terminal, would you think that maybe we see some bubbles forming now? Uh, I would uh, I I would be uh, concerned that uh, uh, when the Fed takes the type of actions we've needed to take this year, uh, you have uh, you have excesses in risk assets, not just prices, but what I'm particularly concerned about is debt buildup, and there there hasn't been as much discussion maybe there as there should have been, but part of the issue we faced in March uh, with the with the pandemic. And the and the uh, closures that we had to do to fight it is we had a lot of excesses in financial markets and it required the Fed to step in and do quite a bit to stabilize financial markets. So those excesses can build up; they're hard to see. And yeah, I'd be I'd, I am worried about those in the seat I'm sitting in, and I'd be conscious of those uh, if I were in the private sector. Well, you do know Wall Street, uh, given your background, and you know as well as I do that all the traders are sitting there this morning going, yeah, great about this framework review, but what have you done for me lately? Uh, are you anticipating any kind of change in the statement on uh, September 16th, something uh, more uh, to, to adjust forward guidance? Uh, I would prefer, and I'm one, one view around the table, I would prefer to wait. I would prefer uh, to get more clarity on the path of the virus. Uh, I think we've already given quite a bit of forward guidance in that through our summary of economic projections, which we'll do another one in September, we've already said that rates are going to stay low for the rest of this year and all of next year. Uh, and I would prefer uh, to show some restraint here. We uh, uh, last I, oh. I, I think we've done quite a bit. We last spoke with you at the beginning of the month when COVID cases were spiking in Texas and the $600 in extra unemployment benefits was just running out. Uh, what's the economy like now, a month on from there? So we had a, we had a pretty robust rebound through mid-June. We saw some stalling after June. And I would say in the last two or three weeks, all our high-frequency indicators, mobility, engagement indices are improved or improved. Are, are firming. And so we're rebounding. Uh, we are not rebounding as much as we would have if we had the virus under better control, but we're still rebounding. We think third quarter, I think third quarter GDP is going to be 20% plus annualized. And so we are, we are growing. Uh, we're rebounding. The issue is, as long as we've got relatively high levels of virus present, it limits consumers' willingness to engage in a number of industries and activities, and that is having a muting effect on the rebound. But we're still, re but we're still rebounding. Well, a week from today, we get the August payrolls report. Uh, what is the labor market like? What should we expect when we get those numbers? Uh, we think that between now and the end of the year, we're at 10.2% unemployment right now. Uh, the bigger indicator I look at, U6, which is unemployed plus discouraged workers, 
plus people working part-time who would like to work full-time is 16%. Those are both going to improve to where the unemployment rate is going to end the year, we think, closer to 8% at this point. And the U6 figure uh, will come down also proportionately. So I can't tell you the exact timing month to month, but you're, you're going to see gradual improvement till the end of the year, unless we have a greater resurgence in the virus. The virus is still the key. Uh, going back to the framework, bringing that into this, uh, you declined to put a numerical target on unemployment because the inflation inflection point changes over time, uh, according to the Fed. Uh, we got down to three and a half percent unemployment in February with no inflation. Can we get back there again under your framework? Uh we're going to give it every. We're going to give the economy every opportunity to do that. I, the dynamics of inflation may well change, uh, and I'm attuned to that because of supply shortages. There are going to be further changes in technology and technology-enabled disruption. There may be changes in the dollar. Uh, we'll have to see uh, if there's severe dollar weakness that could have an impact on inflation. And so, um, I think I think my own approach is going to be. I want to give the labor market every opportunity to get back to that point and not preempt improvement because I anticipate inflation. I'm willing to take a little bit more risk in having inflation run moderately above 2% in order to get uh, to fuller employment and bring in a number of these underrepresented groups that I think will really help the country and help the labor market be stronger. Well, speaking of uh, inflation expectations, as a Wall Street guy who really gets this stuff, what are breakevens telling us now? There's a theory out there that while they have been rising, it's really because there's a lack of liquidity in the tips market. And if you take that liquidity premium out, you don't see any inflation embedded in the uh, expectations markets. Uh there's a lot of factors that affect trading markets. As you said, liquidity is one of them. I would say the the concern about dollar weakness is reflected in a number of uh, commodities and and I think is having some effect on the tips market. So there, there are certain groups, I would guess, in the private sector that are positioning themselves to be prepared for higher inflation than we've had the last 10 years. That may or may not happen. But I think you're seeing a little bit of that concern in the tips market. Uh, one last quick question. I'm turning you over to Tom. Tom wants to know, will the U.S. economy collapse if there's no football in Texas this fall? Uh, I think the, 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 the Texas economy and the, the U.S. has shown to be very resilient. Even if you take away things that, that we hold sacred, uh, we'll adapt to it and we'll, <laughs> uh, we'll continue to We'll continue to power ahead. Robert Kaplan, the president of the Dallas Fed, thank you very much for joining us today. He, did you see how he answered that? He answered that like a press conference. It's I, like he was practicing to be press conferences. Well, you don't mess with football, Tom. Michael McKee, congratulations on a Bullard and Kaplan conversation wrapped around Chairman Powell's speech as well. In days of old... Of Bloomberg on the economy, this would be a one-hour conversation. We'll compress that in now with William Dudley. For years at Goldman Sachs and given great credit for inventing modern Goldman Sachs economics, and then at the New York Fed, Bill Dudley, out of Berkeley, has been one of our greatest students 
of our theory of monetary policy. Bill Dudley, what did the chairman rot yesterday? We knew this was coming, but the, uh, the, the scathing notes I have read from selected economists have startled me. What did he do yesterday? Well, what he did yesterday was he basically changed the inflation objective of the Federal Reserve. Before the Fed followed a, what's called a bygones policy, every year they tried to hit 2%. They missed for five years, 10 years, 100 years, 1,000 years. Next year was always to try to hit 2%. Problem with doing that is if you keep missing on one side, inflation expectations become unanchored. And that was troubling the Fed. The Fed hasn't had trouble hitting 2% objective on inflation for many years. And so basically the Fed has shifted and said, now, no, we don't want to hit 2% every year. We want to hit 2% on average. So if we underperform inflation for a bunch of years, then we need to have inflation above 2% for a while in order to keep inflation expectations around right. 2%. That's really what that's, this whole shift is designed to keep right. inflation expectations well anchored at 2%. Well explained. If we combine Angus Madison on demographics and population with Alan Meltzer on the history of your institution, a simple question has to be asked. If we assume a lesser nominal GDP, if we assume a more dampened economy, why don't we just lower the 2% target to 1.9 or 1.8%? Why not do that? Well, the reason why the Fed wants to have an inflation target of 2%, not lower, is they want to have enough room when uh, you end a, an economic expansion to have the nominal interest rate high enough so there's enough room to cut rates to stimulate the economy and get the economy out of recession. Let's say the inflation target was zero. Then the, you know, the peak short-term funds rate would, at the end of the cycle might be 2 or 3%. There wouldn't be much room to cut rates, and therefore there wouldn't be much way, way to actually stimulate economic activity. Was Fed Chair Jay Powell essentially writing uh, the obituary for the Phillips curve, this uh, relationship that previously was believed that if you get unemployment lower, that will lead to a rise in inflation? I wouldn't say it's quite the obituary, but he's basically saying that we are now going to focus on inflation to guide when we tighten monetary policy, not the level of the unemployment rate. So they changed the language with respect to their employment goals rather than deviations around their employment goals. It's now shortfalls. So they're basically saying that we'll push the unemployment rate to whatever level we can as long as inflation is, is, is low. We're going to keep going. Before, in this last cycle, we actually saw the Fed start to raise rates even before we got to uh, full employment. So we are getting inflation in certain areas, and we were talking about this earlier in the show. Certainly asset prices have gotten incredibly inflated and continue to do so on the promise that the Fed will keep rates low. How concerning is this? At what point does this have to take uh, to make the Fed take stock and raise rates? Well, I think that they are a little bit uncomfortable with the fact that uh, asset prices are, are so buoyant. But remember, that was that's it, also partly by design. I mean, the Fed basically did what they did in March, April, May to try to make monetary policy easy and financial conditions accommodative, and they succeeded. Now, as the stock market keeps going up and up and up and up, that will cause some anxiety about the Fed. But remember, when stock markets go up, stock markets go down, the consequences for financial stability historically have been actually been pretty modest. We had the stock market crash in 1987. Lots of economists anticipated there'd be a recession. There was no recession. But I think that uh, you know, buoyancy in the stock market is probably less risky to the economy because it's not all people that hold, you know, use a lot of mm -hmm. leverage uh, to own, uh, own stocks. 
Bill Dudley, Robert Samuelson of the Washington Post wrote a fabulous book a decade ago on the 60s inflation, really centering on the theology of Walter Heller and well-meaning people who were trying uh, to contain budgets in the Vietnam War budgets and, and such. Stephen Stanley of Amherst Pierpont wrote a wonderful essay over the weekend, and he harkens back to the volatility that could be assumed here through what are called stop-go policies. The idea of a Fed that has to adapt, suddenly we move away from the Greenspan, uh, uh, careful, sec a sequential policy, back towards uh, the Walter Heller stop-go policies of the 60s and 70s. Is that a risk? Well, I wouldn't put it quite that way in terms of stop-go, but what, what the Fed is basically saying is we're going to wait until inflation actually gets yes. above 2% before we tighten. What that means is when they start to tighten, they'll probably try, have to tighten quite a lot. And so you know, the markets right now are saying, oh, this is great. The Fed's going to be on hold for a very long time. But it also raises the risk that when inflation actually gets above 2% to the Fed's objective, the Fed will actually have to slam on the brakes a little bit harder. And so it does increase the risk of, of an economic downturn on the other side. Is the, is the Greenspan era ending? I mean, if, if Alan Greenspan was of a gradual approach of 16th and eighths of a percentage point, are we going back with the stop going, as you just mentioned, larger increases? Did the Greenspan era end yesterday? You know, I'm not sure that uh, Alan Greenspan would necessarily disagree with what the Fed is proposing here. But it, certainly we're now in a new regime where you don't tighten preemptively just because you think the economy is getting to the full employment. You actually wait to see whether the, uh, the low unemployment rate actually translates into rising inflation before you actually pay monetary policy. So it is, a, it is a meaningful shift. Now, that said, I think the Fed is actually already acting that way today. Uh, the fact that, when, that the Fed stopped uh, raising rates and reversed course you know, a, a year and a half ago, uh, you know, that was partly due to an idea that we want to get inflation above 2%. And that was already it. So we already have seen a shift in policy. Does the Fed have any control at this point, given where rates are, in actually boosting the inflation rate that they want to boost? Well, that's where a lot of economists have some skepticism. It's nice to say that you want to get inflation above 2%, but you haven't been able to accomplish that over the last 10 years. And so what are the tools you're going to use to actually accomplish that outcome? So there's quite a bit of skepticism about whether the Fed will actually be successful uh, in pushing inflation above 2%. And the Japanese experience is a cautionary tale in that regard. Well, they said, I mean, Fed Chair Jay Powell said, we are prepared to use all the tools in our toolbox. And they didn't go on to say what those tools were and we're all sort of left in the dark. What do you see as the most plausible tools that the Fed will engage next, should there be another leg of a downturn? Well, I think that they'll do more of the same. They'll do more asset purchases. Uh, they'll keep their, their credit uh, liquidity programs in place. But I think the reality is we have to acknowledge the fact that the power of monetary policy right now to stimulate the economy is pretty low. I mean, interest rates are already very low. The stock market's already very high. Uh, credit markets are very open and accessible. So th th the idea that the Fed can do more, Yes, they can do more, but how much effect will it actually have on the economy? That's why the Fed keeps talking about fiscal policy right now. The Fed understands that, that the power for monetary policies to support the economy today is pretty darn modest. And what the economy really needs at this point is further fiscal support. 
Bill Dudley, I want to go back to the heritage of Berkeley economics. And folks, it's just a fabulous heritage. We know Eichen Green and DeLongham now, but the heritage back to the time of Bill Dudley is absolutely extraordinary from Akerlof on to Saez and and others. Bill Dudley, when you look at the heritage of Berkeley economics, can you say that the speech yesterday will have a global impact that other central bankers, including Andrew Bailey speaking here in an hour or so at Jackson Hole, that they will have to adjust as well? I think people generally are are understanding more and more that the importance of keeping inflation expectations well anchored. And so I think that's a broadly shared view around, around the world. So I don't really think that the Fed is sort of in the vanguard here. I think what they're doing is responding to a problem that's been very evident for a number of years. Bill, what's the statistic above 2%? where this policy in place, where the sweat goes up among fancy guys like you, is it 2.1% or is it a number substantially higher? The tape is rolling. Well, I think it really depends. I think it depends on two things. One, how long have you been below 2% and by how much and numbers and, and how that is then affected mm-hmm. inflation expectations. At the end of the day, as they made it very clear in their policy statement, what they care about at the end of the day is keeping inflation expectations anchored at 2%. So the inflation outcomes necessary to do that are, are, are what's going to drive their decision making. If it turned out that inflation rising to two and a quarter percent was sufficient to keep inflation expectations anchored at two percent, then they'd stop there. If it turned out that they needed inflation to rise to two and a half or three percent to get inflation expectations well anchored Fascinating. at 2%, and they'd be more patient. This is fascinating. Bill Dudley, thank you so much. A very generous interview with the former president of the New York uh, Fed. Right now, the gentleman from Michigan and Chicago joins us, Mark Kiesel. He is with PIMCO, their CIO for Global Credit. Mark, your world changed yesterday. In what way did PIMCO's world change because of the new framework of Chairman Powell? Well, Tom, I think this is a big deal. Uh, Powell I agree. Out and, and this is it may not be a paradigm shift, but I think this is a significant evolution of how the Fed thinks. And I think Powell is a really good leader. If you If you look at the inflation, the core PC inflation, we haven't gotten to the Fed's inflation target mandate since 2005 to 2006. So we have had 15 years of undershooting our inflation in our country. And by the way, the same things happened in Europe and Japan. So I think, you know, Powell has realized this and they are willing to run the economy hot. And I think he's going to go all in uh, in okay. terms of Fed support. I hate to say this, Lisa, but it's a victory lap for Kiesel. We got to do it this morning. Mark Kiesel, your shop, full disclosure, folks. I visited Newport. I've been to Cappy's Cafe with Mohammed. You guys, with the leadership of Bill and Mohammed, and then following on after that train wreck with your leadership, Mark Kiesel, PIMCO has been dead on about a low-rate regime. Do you maintain that low-rate regime, or can you see out two years, five years, ten years, where we get back to the normalcy that the Chairman Powell desires? Uh, Tom, you know, we, we think we're probably closer to the lows now in rates, and that's simply because we are going to get, um, we think, a big fiscal push. It could It could happen uh, after the election, but monetary policy is going all in. 
the Fed has been unbelievably supportive for markets. and, and we think ultimately the mobility data will improve, the economy will start growing again. And if we get f- fiscal infrastructure spending with the Democrats, we could see a much steeper curve and, and you could over time see higher rates. So I think we're closer to the lows now, even though, yes, we did think rates would come down. But now now I think we're, we're suggesting that with the economic recovery and all the fiscal and monetary policy support, that rates over time could, could go higher. Mark, this is a huge call, the idea that we could be near the lows after 30, 40 years of yields going down. What does that mean about investment-grade credit, given the fact that duration, a measure of the sensitivity to interest rates, uh, has risen to the highest levels on record? Is investment-grade credit riskier than high yield at this point? Well, I think what you're going to see, and if you go back to March, what what was fascinating about this, Lisa, is the opportunity actually back then was an investment grade. The Fed did this corporate bond purchasing program. Uh, By the way, they announced the secondary market facility at $250 billion. They've only used $13 billion, so they've used 5% of it, and yet the investment grade corporate bond market is priced $1.4 trillion this year of investment-grade supply. That's a hundred multiplier on the government's money. One of the most effective programs in the history of central banking. So the fact is, is that you're right. The opportunity was an investment grade, but now what people are realizing is that, hey, if this economy broadens, you're going to have to own some equities. You're going to have to own some high yield. So we are seeing a transition in the market. And I think as people feel more comfortable flying and getting on planes and the mobility data improves, you'll start to see investors continue to take more risk. Okay, Mark, investors, people broadening out. What about you? Are you seeing uh, the opportunity for you to take PIMCO money or funds managed by the firm and move it more into that equity-like risk away from investment grade? Has there been any shift in allocation on the of this? So we've, we've added 9 million jobs, but we've still got 13 million more to add back. The unemployment rate's still 10%. We, we still think it'll take two years to get to 2% inflation. What, where we've been kind of modifying our strategy is that back in March and April, you know, we came out with this ring the bell moment on March 20th. We said that investment grade credit was the cheapest I had seen it in my career other than once before. So we were buying a lot of investment grade credit in March, April, May. And now what we've done, and back then, by the way, we were buying healthcare, telecom, cable, a lot of the non-cyclical, a lot of the defensive credits like technology. Now we actually think the recovery trade, if it goes through, you could see the travel and tourism sector pick up, airlines, lodging, etc. Mark, to get mathy on you, we can do that with a guy from Chicago you're calling for the end of the great moderation, I believe. And then do you follow on that there is a small or a great agitation that follows on? Well, Tom, I think what some people may be um, underestimating is these large cap companies have built up a massive war chest of liquidity. Even if you look at the deeply affected COVID hit sectors like airlines, hotels, gaming companies, these companies, Tom, have 20 to 36 months of liquidity. So any vaccine that comes out over the next six to 12 months as businesses, consumers start to travel again, I think you could see a rebound. And I think that's that's the next wave of the rally. The first wave of the rally was clearly housing and technology. Yeah. But if we get an economic recovery, if this mobility data takes off, 
you're going to see the airlines take off. You're going to see people start to travel over the next 6, 12, 18 months. And that's, I think, the potential next wave of the rally. So, Mark, uh, just quickly here, is this a bet that you're willing to make now, that we are going to get that uh, gain in airline, uh, airline bonds, airline credit, as well as the rest of the travel sector? We do have an overweight to that sector. We've done it in what we consider to be a prudent way. And how we've done it is we've basically lent to airlines through through secured uh, bonds, which are basically collateralized by very new planes. We've also lent to some of the strongest lodging companies out there. I'm talking about companies that are the, the leaders in their field. Uh, also gaming companies. And so, yes, we do think that that sector, which has been beaten down significantly, can bounce back. It's not going to be a straight line. There's clearly risks. There's risk with the virus. There's risk Mm -hmm. with the fiscal. So we're doing this eyes wide open. But assuming we get the mobility data and travel to eventually come back, remember, we're 30 percent. The TSA data, we're 30 percent of where we were last year. I'm willing to say that by next year, we'll be at 50, 60 percent. So the whole point is if we get an improvement, given the liquidity these companies have, I think you'll see a rebound there. Mark Kiesel, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much with PIMCO uh, this morning. Joining us now, David Rubenstein, co-founder, co-executive chairman of the Carlyle Group, and author of a new book, How to Lead, which is a really piercing testament to the quality of his interviews. I can't say enough about interview to interview, the way that Mr. Rubenstein has approached this for Bloomberg. This book is a triumph of cutting to the chase. There's a lack of media blather and an immense amount of direct questioning of people successful. Mr. Rubenstein, I must start with my favorite interview you've ever done with the always mysterious Jeff Bezos. What did you learn from Mr. Bezos? Well, Jeff, of course, uh, is an unusual person. He's built the, one of the most valuable companies in the world in a relatively short period of time. But some of the secrets he gave were he makes no decisions before 10 a.m. He doesn't like to make any decisions too late in the afternoon. He likes to get eight hours of sleep. He thinks if he has less than eight hours of sleep, he can't really focus well. He also likes to has to listen to people. He wants to make certain that he hears ideas from other people. He doesn't think all of his ideas are necessarily the best ones. And I would say, relatively speaking, compared compared to what he's accomplished, his 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 uh, demeanor is quite modest, and he has an incredible sense of humor. David, this is so important, and I say this with immense respect for your philanthropy to America, particularly with our historical documents. There has been criticism, including Mark Benioff on Bloomberg the other day, over the philanthropy of these tech giants. Right now, Bezos is a pinata over $15 an hour, $20 an hour, $30 an hour. Do you advise some of these voices in your book to get more like David Rubenstein and be more philanthropic? And that's not what I tried to do in the interviews. The interviews are done on peer-to-peer on Bloomberg, and uh, they're basically an effort to get people to say what made them successful. And in the book, I try to talk about the, the qualities that make people successful and how they become leaders, and that's what I'm trying to do. I'm not really trying to give them advice. Privately, I might ask uh, them if they're interested in certain things, or they might ask me certain things about philanthropy. Jeff Bezos has given away a fair amount of money. Uh, it's just that compared to his net worth, it might seem small, but it's staggering amounts of money so far. 
David, good morning to you. And you've interviewed, during peer-to-peer, -peer, you've interviewed people from such different backgrounds, such different fields. Is it possible to find a common thread, to find something that makes all of these people good leaders, regardless of the field in which they operate? Yes, there are a couple of qualities I talk about in the book. One is they have focus uh, early on their career. They're focused, focused on doing whatever they want to do, approving an idea or a concept. They have failed some point in their life because they recognize that uh, failure probably helps, and so failure has helped them. They also have persistence. They're very persistent. They also learn how to persuade other people. The key to life in getting people to do what you want is persuading them, either by writing or orally or by leading by example. Most of them are actually fairly humble. Um, you know, every leader isn't humble. We know of some leaders that are not humble, but generally these are people that are quite humble. They also keep learning. They read, 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 keep learning more and more. They have a fair amount of integrity. I would say that's very important to them. And they also, I think, are people who share the credit. They don't think that they're the only ones who are responsible for their success. In the end, most of them will say they had a lot of luck. Yeah, that's really interesting too, isn't it? The elements of luck. I mean, they're all humble. They're all humble on TV, David. I wonder what they say to you behind the scenes. Um, but you lead a business, of course, yourself. And so what, what have you identified about your own leadership journey by doing this series of peer-to-peer -peer, uh, interviews? Well, I think in my own case, I got lucky. I, I really wasn't supposed to be a business person. I thought I was a lawyer. I changed. I got lucky. I failed many times. I learned from that. I do think that sharing the credit is very important. And I also think one thing I didn't mention uh, just a minute ago is rising to the occasion. Leaders have to rise to the occasion. It's okay to run a company uh, in normal times, but when something bad happens, like a pandemic, if you can rise to the occasion, you're more likely than not to be a, a really great leader. David Rubenstein, I, I need to go back to your public service to the nation. You served with President Carter uh, long ago in Far Away. There are echoes this morning of the 60s and 70s stated by economists is our central bank recalibrates how they will try to reflate the economy to provide for economic growth. You lived with the Carter administration, very high inflation. Do we risk echoes or shadows of that time? If we could get inflation to 2 3 or 4%, it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. We had double-digit inflation. And the difference was then the U.S. economy was relatively um, separate. We didn't have enormous amounts of low-income products coming in from China. It was an a, a economy where 25% of the workforce was unionized. While that's not a bad thing, I would just say that today you've got less than 10% unionized. And so the pressure from wages isn't as great as it used to be. And then you've got the outside world producing products and services at much lower prices than we can in the United States. So that's kept inflation down a great deal. I don't think the situation is replicable. Then if we see an atomization of the labor force, witness Senator Paul of Kentucky last night accosted on the streets of Washington with echoes of 1968, et cetera, et cetera. How would you suggest, Mr. Rubenstein, that the elites provide the labor economy that this nation screams for? What's the best path? Well, I do think that uh, uh, companies that have employed lots of workers should be sensitive to their needs. I mean, we should pay them a, a, a respectable wage plus side benefits. Healthcare benefits are extremely important for people and not all employers provide them. But I think we should recognize the dignity of basic workers and in some cases that is over, overlooked. But in the whole, I don't see the situation where we're going to get massive inflation. Inflation would actually probably help us a bit in paying down some of our enormous debt, but I don't see that happening. If the Fed could get 2% or 3% inflation, I think they'd be quite happy with that.
Uh, useful to have you on the programme, David, having written a, a, a book all about leadership on the day that we find out that Japan is looking for a new leader. I don't know if you ever met Shinzo Abe or had uh, the pleasure of spending much time with him, but he certainly managed to uh, last a long time for a Japanese prime minister. Certainly the ones who came before him, there was sort of a revolving door. Uh, in terms of the politicians that you have met and, and have talked to and that have stayed the course, do they have something special that you note? Yes, um, I have met uh, Prime Minister Abe. He served quite well for eight years. I spent some time, one time uh, in his office, talking about the value of private equity to the Japanese economy. I'm not sure that that persuaded him of the value of private equity, but I have spent some time with him. I think he did a very good job. It's unfortunate he needs to step down now. Um, I think politicians are different than business leaders. They obviously have different considerations. I did have an interview in the book of President Bush and President Clinton together. President Bush, 40, uh, 43, and President Clinton. And it's quite humorous in how they get along and have a pretty pretty good relationship. Politicians, though, have much different considerations than business people. It's much harder to be a political leader and survive than to be a business leader and survive, in my view. What's been your favorite interview? Well, I think uh, it's like asking which of my children I like the best. But uh, my favorite person to be interviewed by is Tom, <laughs> you. Um, but aside from that, the persons I've interviewed, I, I think the Jeff Bezos interview was extraordinary. He had quite a sense of humor. We had 2,000 people there. Yeah. He, he, was, he was really great. Uh, Oprah was terrific. I mean, she really doesn't need an interviewer to bring her out. She, I mean, she gave a master class on how to be interviewed. And, uh, and she said the key right. to her success has been listening to people when she does <laughs> interviews. Warren Buffett and Bill Gates were also quite, yeah. quite good. Um, so I don't think there was anybody I didn't like. Uh, Yo-Yo Ma was great. Uh, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg had an incredible crowd of people cheering for her. She's right. a real rock star. David, what's your, I got one final question before yes. you, you turn me off. What's your first question to President Trump in a peer-to-peer -peer interview with Donald Trump? I have interviewed him before, before he was president, and I, he told me he was going to run for president. I, I, I was surprised. I didn't think he was really going to do it, but he did. If I interviewed him today, I would say, in the end, what surprised you about the presidency? Did you anticipate it would be as hard as it was, or do you think it's easier than you thought it was? And why do you really want to do this for another four years? Because it can really tax you and you could do so many other things. What is it that you want to do in the next four years that you haven't done in the first four years? David Rubenstein, thank you so much. And uh, congratulations on thank what you. for Bloomberg. We stumbled into this with Mr. Rubenstein, and this has been a massive success, a massive win for uh, uh, Bloomberg. The peer-to-peer -peer conversations of Mr. Rubenstein, How to Lead, is a new effort here in these books. And again, as Mr. David Rubenstein said there, folks, if you got to pick one interview, the Jeff Bezos interview is just magical. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.